Our sermon this morning is on Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. So turn there in your Bibles with me. Uh, If you uh, you need to use a pew Bible, grab one from the seat in front of you. And if you are, you can find Romans 15 on page 893. So you can follow along there. You can also follow along in your bulletin or on on the screen. I personally like to have something in my hand that I can follow with and, you know, just kind of help me. Either, either to take notes or just to kind of see uh, for, for future reference later. But we're going to be looking at the idea of loving one another and enduring together as members of Christ's church. So this text, this passage, first half of Romans 15, is uh, in a lot of ways the, the concluding remarks uh, on what Paul has been talking about for the duration of Romans chapter 14, namely... Um, how to relate to other Christians uh, even when you don't uh, agree on, uh, with one another on disputable matters. Uh, issues that the Bible does not clearly locate as sin, um, but you know, when the Bible does clearly identify something as sin, then we stay away from that. It's, a kind of a, it's a not, not a disputable matter, but for everything else uh, that is disputable, how do Christians relate together when we don't agree, Right? Meat versus vegetables, alcohol, no, no alcohol, movies, music, books, uh, m- you know, music, worship, uh, worship wars, right? Like traditional versus contemporary music, uh, you know, all, all, right? any sort of like, you know, theological doctrine, things like that. Paul has been zeroing in on how Christians should relate to one another even when they don't agree on all of those, those things. And some of the, the guiding principles that um, we saw in Romans 14, uh, first half of the chapter, he's kind of saying uh, weaker Christians, those Christians with weaker consciences, more restrictive consciences, people who have concerns and are conflicted about doing these things, uh, their kind of uh, core principle that Paul says to them is don't judge other people. If your conscience won't permit you to... Uh, drink alcohol, that's great. By all means, don't drink alcohol. Um, but when you see someone else that is drinking alcohol, uh, provided that they're doing it in a way that's not sinful, don't judge them and don't think that you're, that you're better than them. And for those Christians that have s- stronger consciences, the Christians who understand the freedom that they have in Christ to enjoy some of these liberties, uh, their kind of core principle is to not despise others. If you do understand that it's okay to have a, a you know, a glass of, of wine or whatever, then don't, when you see someone who does not afford themselves that freedom, don't despise them. Don't think that they're stupid or that they're, you know, you know, less than you or something like, something like that. So don't judge and don't despise. And Paul also addresses specifically in the latter half of Romans 14, uh, maybe an additional kind of with great with great power comes great responsibility kind of thing, right? Like for, for the, the stronger Christians who um, understand some of the freedoms that they have in Christ, uh, he gives them specific uh, instructions about uh, how and when they could potentially uh, forego the freedoms that they have in Christ for the sake of the people around them, right? The second half of Romans 14, he's basically saying, okay, even though we've established that you can do a lot of these things, uh, you need to think carefully about whether you should. Just because something is not clearly specified in the Bible as being sinful doesn't mean that it's always wise to do it all the time. So think about where you are. Think about who you're with. Think about how your behavior is going to affect the people that you're with. 
Don't violate your own conscience. Don't do something that would compromise your reputation in public. Don't do something that would cause other Christians to stumble or would make their uh, faith, you know, it, it would uh, cause their uh, journey of discipleship to be thwarted in some, in some way. So enjoy your freedom in Christ, but also recognize that there are a number of situations and times and places when you should voluntarily forego your rights and choose not to enjoy them at that particular moment. That's Romans 14. Kind of start to, start to finish. And Romans 15 uh, kind of continues the same idea and kind of brings it to a uh, conclusion. Paul's going to... Um, you know, talk about how to relate to Christians when you don't agree, but he's also then going to dovetail into a, a brief discussion on the nature of the church, how it's comprised of all different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. Um, and so given that we are this diverse group of, of uh, the church is this diverse body of Jewish people and Gentiles and all kinds of people that might not agree on everything, here's why it's so important to love one another and to be agree, even when we don't always agree, to be agreeable. Right, and to, and to be kind and to, to love one another. So let's read Romans 15, verses 1 to 13, and then we will pray, and we'll, we'll get to work. Let's make it happen. Starting in verse 1, it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that you together may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you, all, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes as we study your word together, as we consider it together and meditate on it together. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to come here and meet us here and to speak to us and to give us grace. And we pray that we could be receptive to it and that we could listen uh, to your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, he starts. 
Well, he continues, really, from, verse, from chapter 14. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That verse is essentially uh, a, a summary uh, of, of uh, Romans 14, 13 to 23. The second half of Romans 14, uh, he's kind of summarizing there because he's coming right on the heels of it. If you have a strong conscience, if you realize that you have freedom in Christ to enjoy some of these liberties, that's fine, but you have an obligation as a fellow Christian to bear with other Christians. Don't just live to please yourself and to gratify your own appetites, even if doing so may not be inherently sinful. Don't just throw caution to the wind and do whatever you want, but rather be careful and love your neighbor. And if loving your neighbor uh, means that you have to voluntarily abstain from something that is not necessarily inherently wrong, that's fine. Go ahead and do it, because it's more important to love your neighbor than it is to indulge your appetites and, and desires. And then here's what that looks like practically. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So he's saying, uh, as a Christian, as a member of the body of Christ, your first impulse should not be, can I do this thing? Am I allowed to do this thing? Can I get away with doing this thing? But rather, your first impulse should be, is this thing loving? Is it kind? Will it build up my neighbor uh, in their faith, or will it tear them down? Will it help them to follow Jesus, or will it make it more difficult for them to follow Jesus? That should be our first impulse when considering whether or not we're going to enjoy some particular um, liberty. Right? You're a member of the church, of the body of Christ, and so your top priority is no longer, what do I want to do? Your top priority is now, what will help the other members of the body of Christ follow Jesus and cause their faith to thrive. Now, someone might read that and say, all right, well, that sounds a little idealistic, a little pie in the sky. You're telling me, Ben, Paul, that, that I'm supposed to spend my life, spend my time, spend my energy, spend my resources helping other people follow Jesus. I've got my own life to live. I've got my own things that I want to, to do. Let's be, a risk, let's be realistic. You actually expect me or, frankly, someone, anyone, to actually do what you're saying here in, in verse 2. And Paul says, yeah, absolutely, because it, it has been done. Right? I'm not making this up. Right? All I'm doing is simply calling you to do what Jesus has done for you. Verse 3, for, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So, so why should the Christian strive to build up their neighbor instead of prioritizing their own desires? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus is calling us to do for others what he did for us, right? The, the Bible does not uh, give us this moralistic code and say, go do this thing. The Bible gives us a person named Jesus who loves us sacrificially and unconditionally. And then the Bible says, since Jesus has done that for you, you Right Now that you are totally secure in his love, now we want you to go and do that for other people. Not out of obligation, because you have to in order for God to love you, but out of regeneration, right? A new heart that's grateful to have been loved by God, even though you didn't deserve it, so now it wants to love others, whether or not they deserve it. Right? Jesus did not 
please himself. He did not live to gratify his own desires and preferences. He lived for the good of others. He lived to build others up. And so Jesus lived to build us up, you up, right? His death on the cross was inherently, it had a building up effect to it in your life, in the lives of his people. Jesus laid aside his own preferences and chose to live for the good of others, to build them up, even though it was costly. And it was, uh, I mean, it was incredibly costly, right? The, the, the cost, that it, what it cost Jesus to live to build others up was that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a quote from Psalm 69. This is David speaking to God. He's praying. So the reproaches of those who reproached God fell on David is essentially what he's saying uh, there in Psalm uh, 69. The entire, and so uh, w- w- if we kind of, understand the entirety of Psalm 69, what we're realizing is that this verse is probably speaking, uh, it's speaking uh, indirectly about Christ's death on the cross. When, when Paul says uh, Christ did not please himself, he has in mind his death on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. And the way that we can know that is because the verse that he quotes, Psalm 69, is a verse that everywhere else in the New Testament is cited in reference to Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice for for sin. Here's some of the things that we read in Psalm 69 alongside this, this verse that, that's quoted. Right, the, the, the psalmist, David, is, uh, he's been forsaken by his friends. He's been ruthlessly attacked by his enemies. He says, I'm weary. I'm crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim while I'm waiting for God to save me. People hate me without cause. They want to destroy me. They are attacking me with lies and slander. I've borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I'm being treated by a stranger, I'm being treated as a stranger by my own brothers. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fell on me, meaning meaning people around me hate God and they are taking their hatred of God and redirecting it toward me. They are all of their hatred for God is falling heavy on me. It, their sin is falling on my shoulders. Um People are laughing at me and mocking me. I'm being dishonored and shamed. I'm looking around for comfort, but no one is willing to comfort me. Instead of comforting me, they're giving me sour wine to drink. These are all verses explicitly uh, you know, laid out in Psalm 69. A psalm that was written by David, describing his experiences as the king of the people of God, the representative leader of the people of God. But it's also a psalm that was written uh, anticipatorily, right? That was written uh, of the true, not, not, not just of King David right then, right there, but of the true Davidic king, the one who uh, was to come, the Messiah, who we would later come to know uh, as Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, prioritize their needs above your own preferences and desires. And the reason why I want you to do that is because Jesus did that for you. And if you don't believe me that Jesus did that for you, then, then look to the cross, look to Jesus Christ, God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, hanging on a cross, die, being mocked, beaten, laughed at, dying a terrible death as a sacrifice for sin. Look to Jesus and then let what Jesus has done for you 
in the gospel, let that inform and motivate how you interact with other Christians. Every action, every interaction that you have with every other believer should be colored, it should be flavored by how Jesus treated you and by the reality that Jesus was willing to die for you to save you from your sins. Now at this point, someone might say, all right, fine. Uh, Point granted. I get that I'm to bear with other Christians. Uh, I get that I'm to live with them and build them up because Jesus did that for me, but says who? Right? How do I have any how can I know what Jesus, who Jesus was, what he did? How can I, uh, you know, have Jesus and his person and work in the gospel set before me as, as a template, as an example for me to follow? How can I know what it is that I am following? And Paul's answer in verses 4 and following is uh, to read your Bible. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through uh, endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So the person and work of Jesus is intended to motivate our Christian lives, to motivate us toward godliness. It's, it's to, the, the personal work of Jesus is to act as, as jet fuel that propels us to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus and follow him as a disciple. And the way that we can know who Jesus is so that we can be sufficiently propelled to that end is by reading our Bible. Paul had a high view of Scripture. Elsewhere in 2 Timothy, he says, uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is therefore profitable for teaching and reproving and correcting and for training in righteousness. Paul had, a, had a, uh, an incredibly high view of Scripture and, and what it is and, and, and its place in the life of the believer. We, uh, we affirm a doctrine called verbal plenary inspiration which is a mouthful. Verbal plenary inspiration. The word inspiration means you're inspired, right? If an, if an artist is inspired, they're like, oh man, I'm, I have, I've been like, you know, I've been, I'm being guided along by, I'm being driven to do something or create something by this inspiration. And so, so when we say that the Bible was inspired, we mean that the biblical authors wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. God was the sovereign architect behind the, the scriptures. The authors of scripture were regular people. They were human beings. They weren't robots or tape recorders. So they were regular people using their own brains, using their own ideas, writing, uh, you know, words and sentences and paragraphs. They, but but uh, behind their, behind their actively, freely writing what they wanted to write was God sovereignly guiding their hand and ensuring that what they wrote was exactly what he wanted them to write. And so, the, so you know, the, the, Jesus was entirely fully God and entirely fully man. That's the, that's the nature of Christ. And the Bible was written by human beings, but it was also written by God. It was, it was, it's a divine book that was written by human hands. But the fact that human beings wrote it doesn't take away from God's ultimate sovereign authority and authorship of the Bible. The Bible was written by God. That's what we mean by uh, inspired. We can see this in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, where he says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the biblical authors used their own brains and their own hearts and their own thoughts, but behind it all, the Holy Spirit was guiding them to write the book that God wanted them to write. That's inspiration. That's one of three, right? The next is, so, so we're, we, we believe in verbal, plenary inspiration. That's inspiration. Verbal means words. So we believe that the actual words of Scripture are inspired by God. They are what God, there, there are some scholars uh, that say, well, all right, maybe the Bible was inspired uh, by God, but the words weren't. Like, it's, like God inspired the ideas, the motifs right? The abstract thoughts that kind of lie underneath it, but the words themselves are not necessarily uh, inspired by, by God. And so the word verbal in verbal plenary inspiration denies that and asserts that it's the words themselves. The Bible is inspired by God and the words that you read in it were inspired by God. That's what he wanted them to, to that's, those are the words he wanted in the Bible. And then the word plenary, so verbal is words, Inspiration is inspired by God, and plenary means uh, entirely, complete, all of it, every bit of it. Right, if, you go to a, if you go somewhere and there's a plenary session, it means we're all, everyone is here together. This is a right, plenary session. Like there, there's Sunday school where we are ever in different rooms, and then there's the plenary session where we're all, right, so every bit of it, all of it together. And so there are some scholars that say, all right, maybe the Bible's inspired, and maybe it's the words that are inspired, I'll grant you that, but not all of them. Right? Not the ones that I don't like, not the ones that are inconvenient, not the ones that call me to repent of a sin that I don't want to repent of, not the ones that, are, that, that you know, specify a, a doctrine that's embarrassing to the world, whether it's a biblical sexual ethic or whatever else. And so, so sure, the Bible's inspired, sure it's the words, but not all of them. And so the word plenary denies that and says, no, it's all of the words in the Bible are inspired by God, not just the ones that we like, not just the ones that are convenient, but all of them. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. In other words, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And so God has a high view of the Bible. Paul has a high view of the Bible. We, in turn, have a high view of the Bible. And in verse 4, uh, this, this is why the Bible was written or at least the, these are among the reasons why the Bible was written. It was written, uh, one, for our instruction, so that we might have hope, so that we might be encouraged, so that we might endure. Right? We kind of see all of those uh, words or themes kind of littered throughout verse, verse 4. The Bible was written for, so for our instruction means to instruct us, to teach us, to correct. Right? There are, there are, beliefs and views and things that we think in our hearts or in our minds that frankly are not right and the 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 bible was written to confront and correct uh those incorrect views and it was written to instruct us right the the default belief in the human heart is that I am at the center of the universe. I'm the most important person. My experience is what matters most. And the bible says actually you're not at the center of the universe. God is. Everything doesn't revolve around you. Everything revolves around God. There are more important things than you getting your way, like God being glorified and receiving the glory that he 
deserves, right? The Bible instructs us and corrects us where we're off course, right? The default um, belief of the human heart or of the, you know, human brain is that what I feel matters most, right? Uh, Based on who I am, based on how I feel, I get to decide who I am. I get to decide what's right and what's wrong. I get to decide, uh, you know, what's true and what's not true based on how I feel. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to believe. Uh, Only I can based on how I feel. And the Bible says, actually, what you feel is not what matters most. There are things that are true regardless of how you feel about them. God exists outside of you, apart from you, regardless of how you feel about it. God created you, and so he is the one who gets to say who you are, not you, based on how you feel. God is the one who says what's true, not you, based on how you feel. God is the one who says what's right and wrong, not you, based on how you feel. And so the Bible instructs us. It corrects these wrong beliefs that we have kind of baked in to who we are. But it doesn't just instruct us, right? As if that's all that we needed was just simply to be instructed. We just, all we need is to just learn these facts. And once we learn them, and once we give intellectual assent to the correct set of facts, then we'll be all set, we'll be all straightened out, everything's fine, right? The Bible um, instructs us. It doesn't do less than that, but it does far more. It, It also encourages us and gives us hope. They, uh, they say that the best coaches in sports are the ones who are not always the, the brainiest, right? The ones who are like, you know, they know the game the best, all the X's and O's. They can diagram all the plays. They're like some chess master grand wizard of football or whatever it is, right? Those are good guys to have around. They're good guys to have on staff in your organization, Um but they don't always make for the best coaches because all of that head knowledge that they have, all of the instruction that they may be able to give to the team, uh, is on, it's valuable, but it's, it will only take you so far. And what you really want in a coach is, I mean, if you have that, that's great, the, the, all of that head knowledge, but what you really want is this, like, intangible... X factor, like difficult to put your finger on quality of being able to bring the, the most and the best out of your players, right? To, to somehow make them play harder than they would play for anyone else, to make them practice harder all week long than they would practice for anyone else, to make them want to win more playing for you than they would want to win for playing for anyone else, or to make them hate losing more than they would if, you know, for anyone else. You have to make them want to sacrifice for the man to their left and the man to their right so that they can win together as a team, right? Those are the teams, the teams that do that are the teams that win in the postseason when the game is the hardest. And so a good coach is the one who can somehow do that. He may know more about football than anyone else, or he may not, but he can do that. He can make guys dig deeper and try harder and play harder. Right, uh, you know, they he, he may or may not know all of the everything about the game, but if he doesn't, then he employs guys who do. But like when you come out of the tunnel, like you're gonna run through a wall for that, right? You know, I'm, we're gonna win or we're gonna die trying. 
right? There's something, if, if you can do that in your players, in your team, that's what makes for a good coach. So everything else, right? You know, diagramming plays, hiring the right people, you know, managing the salary cap, all that's great, but we need someone, we need a coach that's going to pull the very best out of every single man on this squad so that we can be the very best team that we can be when we take the field, right? You need a coach that will encourage and give the players hope, right? And so Paul says, the Bible was written to instruct you to to impart knowledge to your brain, which is important, but it was also written to encourage you, to give you courage and to, to give you hope. It was written to galvanize your soul and energize you and make you want to be more godly than you would otherwise be. If you look at your life as a Christian and you think, I'm I'm lacking zeal, I'm lacking passion, I don't pray as much as I would like to or as much as I think that I should, I don't share the gospel as much as I would like or as much as I think that I should, right? For whatever reason, I find myself getting more excited about, I don't know, uh, some concert I got tickets for, or my next vacation, or the the new iPhone, then, then, I, then I get excited about the reality that my sins have been forgiven, and I'm going to spend eternity with God in His presence because of Jesus. If you feel like your Christian life is lacking the power that it should have, Paul says, that's why the Bible was written, to, to remedy that problem. It was written to encourage you and give you hope. So don't overlook it and don't neglect it. Don't starve to death while you've got a refrigerator full of food. Don't live in poverty when you've got a suitcase with a billion dollars in it in your closet, right? If you want power in your Christian life, it starts by reading your Bible. That's literally why it was written, to encourage you and give you hope. So commit to reading your Bible, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, and, and I promise you, you will find that as you do, as you start to take in more of the Bible each day, that it will start to work its way into your life. You will find that there is love for God where there used to be indifference. You'll find that there's hatred for sin where there used to be tolerance and coexistence. You'll want to pray. You'll want to share your faith. You will want to disciple other believers. You will want for other believers to disciple you. It starts with uh, reading and immersing yourself in the inspired, inerrant, perfect, sufficient, divinely authored Word of God. That's why it was written. So it was written to instruct us, to give us knowledge for our brains. It was written to give us hope and courage so that we can actually live out the godly life. But, it, but that's not meant to be a blip in the radar. That's not, not, not meant to just happen in fits and starts and then, oh, it happens and then it kind of snuffs out and then it's gone. It's meant to happen and press into the future permanently, right? So not just instruction, encouragement, and hope, but endurance. So that through endurance we can have, have hope. And so Paul is saying that reading the Bible is what helps you endure and persevere in the faith as a Christian. The reality is, not everyone who says they believe in Jesus, not everyone who begins the journey of discipleship, 
endures to the end. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, many will fall away. It's not possible to lose your salvation. Every true believer will persevere to the end. If anyone falls away, it shows that they weren't really converted in the the first place. That's another conversation we can have. But according to Jesus, many will fall away. And here in, in Romans 15, Paul is saying, if you don't want to fall away, if you do want to endure and persevere to the end, here's how you do it. Read your Bible. So that you'll be strengthened to walk with Jesus so that you can persevere and endure to the end. I'm 39. I've been walking with the Lord for over two decades now. And I've seen a lot of people walk away from the faith. A lot of people that were super devout, a lot of people that were super godly, people that I did ministry with vocationally, shoulder to shoulder, sharing the gospel, discipling people, teaching the Bible. I've seen people like that walk away from the faith. And, and one common thread that seems to have been present every single time when someone walks away from the faith is that before they walked away from the faith, they stopped reading their Bible. And they stopped being a part of a church. Which incidentally, if it's a good church, you're going to be exposed to the Bible in it. So those two are almost you know, saying the same thing. I, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think that I personally know anyone who walked away from the Christian faith while they were actively reading their Bible and actively involved in a church that preaches the Bible. And the, re- the reason why I think that's the case is because the Bible is the primary way that the Holy Spirit encourages your soul, gives you hope, gives you power, gives you strength, gives the ability to endure and to persevere in the faith. I'm, I'm not a betting man, but if, some, if someone were to come and say to me, if you, one of you were to come to me and say, I'm going to stop reading my Bible, I'm going to stop attending church, I have every intention of being a Christian, all right? I, I, don't, I don't not love Jesus anymore, so I'm, I want to stay a Christian, I want to remain a Christian, but I'm going to stop reading my Bible and I'm going to stop attending church. And, and so do you think that I will still be walking as a Christian uh, a year from now or two or three or ten years from now? And if someone asked me that, I would say, yeah, my guess is that you will probably walk away from the faith. Because that would be cutting off the, the, the God-intended, God-ordained air supply for your soul, right? The, the, those those things, the Bible and the church, those are the, the means that God intends to help you to persevere in the faith. And if you cut them off, my guess is that you will not persevere in the faith. And I'd, I'd say the same thing about myself. I'd say the same thing about Billy Graham. I mean, you name it, right? You, you name the Christian, no matter how devout they are, if you, if you cut out the Bible and the church from their life, I think the chances of persevering as a Christian are slim to to none. 
God wrote the Bible to instruct us and encourage us and give us hope so that we might endure. Verse 5, may the, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so restating a lot of what we saw in, in uh, verse 4, that God wants us to endure, he wants us to encourage us, and he wants to use his word to do it. But, but verse 5 kind of adds in a uh, communal component, a plurality component, right? It's not just that God wants to give you individually singular uh, the, the means of grace to help you endure in the faith. It's that he wants you to do it as a part of a a, a community. He, God wants you, God doesn't just want you to worship him, he wants you to worship him, uh, your individual voice joined with a bunch of other individual voices to come together as one collective voice. God wants his people to thrive spiritually, but he wants his people to thrive spiritually together, collectively as a unit, as a family, as a, as a covenant community. So if you're vision of the Christian life is one of individualism, right? Just me and my Bible, just me and my prayer life, just me and my spiritual disciplines. Everyone else is secondary to that. According to Scripture, that vision of the Christian life is deficient and, and anemic. God wants your life to be lived in community with the, the church. And then verse 7, he kind of draws this uh, to something of a close. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So kind of three clauses, right? The command, the example, and the reason, right? Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory. If someone were to come to you and ask, how does God want me to relate to other Christians? And while you're at it, I want you to give me a clear example of someone who's done it so that I can use them as a template. And also, what if I don't want to? What if I don't feel like it? What if I don't think that I should have to? What happens if I do? What happens if I don't? If someone comes to you with all of those questions, you could take them any number of places in the Bible to unpack those questions. You could take them to Romans 14, right? What we just read the last few weeks. You could take them to John 13. You could take them to the book of Ephesians, or you could just show them one verse. You could just show them Romans 15, 7, right? right? All of those questions are all answered in just these, this dozen words or so, right? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And then in verses 8 and following, he transitions to looking at the, the nature of the church, how it works, what it is, and how this, you know, is, is, is relevant to and, 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 you know, one and the same as how we treat one another. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's the nation of Israel. That's Jewish people. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs. That's the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Right? So everything so far in verse 8 has to do with the nation of Israel. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. He came to a Jewish nation to... to save them, and to fulfill the promises that God gave to them. And, verse 9, and also, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
So Jewish man, Jewish Messiah, Jewish Savior sent to Jewish people to fulfill the promises that were given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah. When G- in Matthew 15, there's a Gentile woman that comes to Jesus and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And Jesus responds, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there's more to the story, but, but the point is, Jesus is a Jewish Savior sent to Jewish people as a fulfillment of Jewish prophecies. So one would expect that when you look at the people of God after Jesus comes and lives and dies and rises and ascends, if you look at the people of God, one would expect that the people of God would be almost exclusively Jewish. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. Most of the people in the Old Testament Most of the people of God were Jewish. There are a few exceptions. Rahab, Ruth, you know, the widow at Zarephath. There's a few Gentiles that kind of came and kind of globbed on and joined the party. But for the most part, the people of God in the Old Testament was almost entirely Jewish. And so one would expect that that Jewish people that receives the Jewish Savior that comes to them to fulfill the promises that were given to the Jewish patriarchs, yeah, After Jesus' life and ministry, the people of God would remain largely Jewish, right? Wrong. Right? In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. If you look around the church today, if you look around this church, look around this room. There's not a lot of Jewish people in this room. There's not a lot of Jewish people in most churches in the world today. I did some calculations. This is tricky because it's, you know, it's hard to nail down some of these numbers. But um, depending on what numbers you use and what statistics you use and what definitions you use, I tried to run some calculations to see what percentage of the Christians in the world are Jewish. And the number I came up with was less than one-tenth of, sound like Bernie Sanders, like less than one-tenth of one percent. Right, is, is, is Jewish. So, so 99 point not, more than 99.9% of the Christians in the world today are Gentiles. And we as Gentiles, we read that and we think, good news for us, right? Amen, praise God. I'm so glad that that's the case. I'm so glad that I get to go to heaven instead of hell. I'm so glad that I get to be a part of the family of God, even though I'm a Gentile and not a Jewish person. This is good news. But they were a bunch of Jewish people in the first century who read that differently and thought, I actually like things the way that they were. Right? I, I'm a Jewish person, Jewish Messiah sent to the Jew. Let's keep everything the way that it is. Let's keep it in the family. Right? I'm not sure how I feel about all these Gentiles coming in and making themselves at home and changing everything. A lot of of Jewish people in the first century that read this verse uh, like the son of a billionaire who just found out that he's got like hundreds and thousands of biological brothers and sisters. And it's like, ugh. My inheritance just got diluted. I'm not a fan of, of that. And so Paul writes the next four, right, in verses 9 through 13, is Paul writing to those Jewish Christians who might be tempted to feel that way, and Paul says, look, I I know that, I don't know if you're aware or not, but the whole, like, let Gentiles into the church thing is not new. Jesus didn't make it up on the fly to upset you. It's been... It's been baked in the whole entire time, just waiting to come to the 
surface. And so he cites several verses to kind of uh, verify and, and prove that. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is from Second Samuel 20, it's two places actually, Second uh, Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. They're kind of the same. Um, if you were to, to hold them side by side. But they're both written by King David, right? Who is, so again, for that guy who's, who's, who's kind of cranky about the idea of Gentiles being led into the church, that guy is going to have several, he's going to have a Mount Rushmore in his brain, right? The heroes, the rock stars of the Old Testament, that he, you know, whether, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, he's got like a short list of guys that like, if you want to convince him, you can, uh, you can appeal to these guys and that's going to mean a lot to him. And so Paul says, I know that you think David is a rock star. I know he's on your Mount Rushmore. Well, listen to what David said. David said, I am going to spend my life praising God among the Gentiles. David, David, right, the, the, the good old boy, Jew, right, the 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 Jew of Jews, right? The, the, the king of Israel, the quintessential king of Israel was expecting a massive ingathering of Gentiles into the people of God. Verse 10, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Moses. That's Deuteronomy 32. Moses is nearing the end of his life and he's encouraging the people of God to stay strong and be faithful after he dies. And he holds up a vision of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And his vision is Jews and Gentiles worshiping God together. The God of Israel, who, who has revealed himself to Israel, has also revealed himself to the whole world so that anyone from anywhere who trusts in him can be saved. So that's David, that's Moses. Psalm one, the next one, verse 11, is from Psalm 117. Not sure who wrote that, but it's, it's worth reading. It's cups, you, know, you can read it, and I'll read it to you. Uh, right? like, it's two verses, right? So, so praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him, right? So, so you know, this Psalm 17 is a vision of uh, the greatness of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God, and then the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, responding to God's love and faithfulness by worshiping him and, and uh, extolling him, exalting him, and saying how great he is. And then verse, 12, or, yeah, then verse 12, which is Isaiah, another guy on the Old Testament Mount Rushmore. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gent- will the Gentiles hope. That's Isaiah chapter 11, which is actually one of the, it's like one of the texts we read at Christmas time. It's referenced in a lot of hymns and Christmas carols. Uh, there shall be a, a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse that shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. It's, it's, it's Isaiah 11 is talking about Jesus, right? It says, he will judge with righteousness. He will bring justice for the oppressed. Righteousness and faithfulness will be a, a belt around his waist. He will usher in the kingdom of God. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth just like water covers the sea. And he will arise and rule over the nations. And the Gentiles will look to him and hope in him. That's Isaiah's vision for what 
Jesus is going to do when he comes to save his people. Invite the nations to himself. So you've got Moses, the man who led Israel out of Egypt. You've got David, the the quintessential archetypal king of Israel. And you've got Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. And they all three speak with one voice in their anticipation of a future time when Gentiles would be gathered from the nations and welcomed into the people of God. And so Paul is pointing to them and saying, I get that you weren't expecting all of these Gentiles. I get that you thought it was a Jewish thing with a Jewish Savior for Jewish people and you liked it that way. But the reality is, Jesus didn't make any of this up. He didn't he didn't call an audible at the line of scrimmage to let the Gentiles into the church. They, it was planned. It was premeditated. And God did it on purpose so that Jews and Gentiles could be together in one body, one family, the body of Christ, the people of God, so that they can live together, bear with one another, build each other up, just as Christ has done for them, for the glory of God. And then he finishes this section of his book, verse 13, with a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Right? God is the God of hope, and God wants to give you hope. He wants you to abound. He wants you to experience an overflowing measure of hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer is that the people of God, right, the the church in Rome and Christians all throughout church history, including us here today, Paul's prayer is that the people of God would be filled with the Holy Spirit so that they can experience and embody what this passage is teaching about. Receive the Holy Spirit, be filled by the Holy Spirit, as a member of the church, Jews and Gentiles together, living together, loving one another, trusting in Jesus together. And as you do, may you, be, may you be strengthened and encouraged so that you can endure. And as you do, may you love one another and bear with one another and look out for one another and build one another up in their faith. In other words, welcome one another just as Jesus has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved we thank you that you have saved this group of gentiles and you've brought us into your family, into your kingdom through your covenant faithfulness. We thank you for your word that was written to encourage us and help us to endure. And we pray that we could love one another and bear with one another and strive to build one another up in the faith just like Jesus has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.